Hello, A16Z team. What is up, Nikhil? How are you? Nikhil, hey, yo. I'm here to drop the median median IQ of this room, but bring the chaotic. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> and and I'm ex- I'm I, I I walked into this and I thought this was like somehow two x speed because I didn't realize how fast Mark talks. So I'm um, also could <laughs> slow down the speed of speaking by like 0.5 x. Just if you can, if you can find a button that fixes that, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Any one of those two. Amazing. Well, I'm excited to chat. Amazing. Awesome. Okay. I think we're at a critical mass here, so let's go ahead and kick off. So thank you everyone for joining. Good evening um, and welcome to It's Time to Heal, which is A16Z's clubhouse room to cover the future of bio and healthcare in a uh, interactive discussion. Um, I'm Julie Yu, one of the general partners here on the healthcare side. And with me tonight are my A16Z BioGP colleagues, Vanita Agarwala, Mark Andreessen, Vijay Pandey, and Jorge Conde. And I'm very pleased to introduce our special guest, uh, Mr. Nikhil Krishnan, who is um, very well known for his out-of-pocket Substack newsletter. Uh, he's got a Slack community that he won't let me into. Um, <laughs> he's written an award-winning children's book, If You Give, Mou- if you give a Mouse Metformin, which my son loves. And actually, and, uh, I love that. That was fantastic. Yeah. My, um, the, my favorite videos ever are people that send me uh, videos of their kids saying mama, data, and metformin. So I'm very excited to like be the first three <laughs> words of the lexicon for some kids. That's awesome. Um, my son's was real world data. That's that's what he took away from it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, so, and, and he's in the past worked at Charles Spark. Um, he was a healthcare analyst at CB Insights, so has just a great sort of purview on the space. Uh, and today we are going to chat about the things that make you go, hmm, in healthcare. Um, Nikhil always has a great hot take on lots of areas where we see either something that's surprising or areas where we just have to wonder why it works that way. Um, so we'll get into some of the nitty gritty along those lines. Um, for those of you in the audience, if you do have questions, some of you have already sent some ahead of time, so thank you for that. Um, please DM your questions to Andy, who you see up here on stage. If you click on his profile, you'll be able to get to his Twitter handle and uh, DM him there. If we have time, um, if Nikhil doesn't suck up all the all the time with his, his jabbing here, we'll try to bring in <laughs> as many um, of those questions into the conversation as we can. And just a final note, um, this is being recorded, so please... Um, Please be mindful of what you say. Oh boy. Yeah. See now. Now I just like throw <laughs> you. So um, so let's get started. So Nikhil, first question. We're going to start with an audacious question. If Biden made you U.S. healthcare czar for a day, what is the one thing you would declare, change, or do? Oh my God. Uh, first thing is make uh, make toilet paper HSA eligible. Solve, <laughs> solve is it not? <laughs> I don't think so. I actually probably should have looked this up. Okay, make bidets HSA eligible. Um, I think, I mean, more seriously, I mean, I this is something, a point I've harped on many times, but the, like, original sin of the U.S. healthcare system is just the employer insurance contract we are currently in. It's just so bad. Employers should not be deciding plans on your behalf. You sh- They shouldn't be getting pre-tax dollars in ways that individuals don't. It's just, you know, that's just like a total mess um so you can decouple that in different ways it depends on how drastic you want to go the more like inchwise version of this is maybe you uh you know bolster icras for example so giving 
um, giving individuals the same sort of tax benefits that employers get to go buy their plans. That's like simple fix. There are more drastic fixes, which is like, why don't we, um, you know, give more subsidies to people to buy uh, buy plans on the exchanges and make it somewhat equitable to buy a plan on the exchange versus from your employer um, or even have a public option that sort of exists to to, to be a cheap version that you can buy. Um you know, I don't know about things like balancing budgets and all that. So that's, I'm gonna leave that to the experts, but that's like the, that's like the, the problem that I think a lot of the downstream problems result from. So for me, that's like number one thing. Um, that's a good one, but I'm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, what are your answers to that? I think that's a well, good if question. Biden, I guess a question, I guess the follow-up question for you would obviously be if, if Biden did make you U.S. healthcare czar for a day, would you willingly relinquish that power 24 hours later <laughs> for one day? Yeah, I would no, do, I would just do the most inane stuff for one day and then just leave uh, or just cause total, <laughs> total havoc or just tweet out my newsletter one or the other. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just assumed you were going to answer. Like if I got one wish, I would just wish for more wishes. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. Well, no, no. You know, the thing that I am so curious about and like we should wrap our heads and like really see what we can do is I would love for the U.S. the U.S. healthcare system to be the sort of the, the star of the world rather than, you know, the one everyone makes fun of being like number 23 or 54 or whatever. And for it to be the envy of the world, what would it take? And a market based system is really interesting, but like it's hard to do healthcare in a market based system. And so it feels like sometimes we have the worst of both worlds. But uh, I don't know if that's transparency. I don't know what it is. But I mean, this is like yeah. the topic, right? I mean, this is the, the and I'm really curious to really poke at this. Yeah. And um, Chrissy, Chrissy Farr had a great uh, tweet earlier today. She did a, a survey, I think it was today. Um, she did a survey that said, which will come first, um, us on, the, on Mars or fixing of U.S. healthcare? And when I saw the poll, it was like 91%, um, yeah. you know, Mars. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then... And then people were joking that the nine percent of people who voted for U.S. healthcare are not in the U.S. like don't know healthcare. Um, <laughs> well, and that's completely unrealistic because you're going to need healthcare on Mars, right? So, like, you know, one <laughs> the other. yeah. But the problem the is, it's, gonna be, it's a pretty, pretty binary player-based system. Um, I mean, there's like a there's there's an ideological question that sort of underlies this, which is it depends on who you are that you think the U.S. healthcare system is great or not, right? If you have a very complex, rare disease, et cetera, you know, the U.S. still looks great in terms of we have probably some of the most cutting edge sort of technology out there to treat complex care cases. The thing is, for the average person, for the regular person in the U.S., it is a system that sucks, right? Um, it is. And, and, and there are parts that are solvable that sucks that are not ideological, like, for example, it being very opaque. That is that is you know a solvable thing, which whichever direction you choose to go to go in, right? Like more market based system or more government top down based system. Um, but I, I do think there are parts of it that that are are a little bit more ideological that we just haven't quite grappled with. It's like what kind of healthcare system we really want. I think um, so. Anyway, that, that actually on just, that on that yeah. note, I mean, one of the things that that that's interesting is like when people think about the healthcare system. Most people are really thinking about it as as being fee for service or value based care, but but in actuality, you know, we see that there's like there there are multiple flavors of value based care. Cash pay is growing, et cetera. 
So, you know, if we're thinking of, if we're rethinking the system um, and change is already happening and taking place now, like what do you think are, are the new revenue models or the new revenue model opportunities that are noteworthy in healthcare? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say value-based care models today fall largely into like, what, like three buckets or so. It's capitated models where you get paid per person. There are um, bundled models where you get paid maybe per procedure. And then there's the like sort of payer provider model where you're sort of both an insurance company and kind of on the hook um, in total. And then within that, there are obviously different flavors. I, I think the thing that I have always not quite... I think the problem I've always I've always felt about value-based care models generally, it's I mean, there's a few fold. One is the people who the work falls on to do a lot of the value-based care stuff don't get to participate in a lot of the like actual dollar upside personally. And so you're putting a lot of work on people that that don't end up kind of getting a lot of the gains. And then the second thing is also that you know, we have we've been sort of so coy about doing upside downside risk things where we only like we've basically let a lot of providers just kind of go into this upside only model where yeah there's no risk if you kind of mess up but if you do well we'll give you some bonuses and like it's really a carrots only thing um you know some areas like direct contracting i think are really interesting because they kind of lean into a kind of full fully kind of full at full risk model that providers can can go into and a lot of new entrants can go into you know that's the other thing is that um it, it's 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 sometimes hard if you don't have benchmarks for example to go into value-based care arrangements but things like direct contracting have have thought through ways to do that um but you know what one of the things that i i've been thinking a little bit about and i'd be curious to hear thoughts from the room about this is i think the like problem with value-based care models actually flows out of a provider consolidation problem which is that you have all these providers that are super large that make a lot of money from fee for service and they don't really like have a ton of incentive to want to push their way all the way to value based care models and the problem i think is actually that we need more independent providers one because they can lean directly into some of these value based care models and try and derive most of their revenue from that and their workflows will reflect a a sort of, you know, a provider that is leaning into a value-based care system. There's a reason why, you know, um, someone who, uh, hospitals that are financially at risk, like uh, Kaiser, have very different workflows than someone who's sort of most mostly fee-for-service. And I think if you did that across more providers, um, you know, it would be, it would, you'd be able to, first of all, run more experiments. Like we don't have that many providers we can run value-based care mm-hmm. experiments with in the first place. And they kind of half-assed their way into like, kind of participating in them, not really, don't really dedicate a lot of resources to it. It's hard to tell like how good they were. Um, so we just don't have enough providers to, I think, test these models. So, yeah. you know, I, I think Strong plus problem. one, Nikhil, I, I totally agree. agree. Yeah, yeah. And I think also- people underestimate the role of provider staffing as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think what you're describing as a workflow change, people often assume might be 100% achievable with software. If I just give providers better software or better data reporting infrastructure, I'll turn, I'll flip them overnight into a value-based um, care provider. And I, I think we've overemphasized this this notion of quality reporting as the core mm-hmm. infrastructure for value-based care. And yes, mm-hmm. that's true. It's important to be able to measure value in some way. But I think you're right. The value actually is going to be maybe more cut and dry, right, in terms of dollars saved and what might be mm-hmm. harder 
is actually implementing new staffing and workflow models. So I think I'm, I'm particularly interested in value-based care regimes that actually augment um, a core provider because they're already stretched. And so asking them to report more data or record more data, you know, will never work. <laughs> yeah, like that's why I like direct contracting models. I like these kind of Medicare Advantage specific PCPs because you can build your entire workflow into that model, right? Like you're leaning straight into it and you know exactly what it, what you need to build to, mm -hmm. to reach your whatever underneath the, the capitation amount. So I, I wanted to also, it's, it's more about like, how do you create value-based care models that you know for a fact, new smaller providers will lean into and build from the ground up. That's what I would like to see. That's the one benefit, going back to what you said earlier, Nikhil, um, so yeah, you know, yes, I think the ultimately like what insurance will look like in the future, um, when, when we're not reliant on the employer chassis, uh, you know, will, will look fundamentally different in many ways, but the nice thing about the employer channel has been that they're willing to experiment at least, you know, uh, certain segments of it. And mm -hmm. that's where you've seen, you know, some of these sort of like direct contracting models play out where, um, there are many experiments happening, you know, both amongst primary care, but also specialist providers, that you know, get rid of the entire sort of like claims-based chassis and are doing creative things around pricing and transparency and real-time payments and stuff like that, which ultimately, you know, the, the hope is that those flow into the broader, you know, carrier sort of set of, of capabilities. Um, and which is mm -hmm. you know kind of the trend that you've seen in general with employer-sponsored benefits is, is it kind of starts Julie, there and Julie, you said when out. when we're not dependent on the employer chassis, but like is that when, not if guaranteed? I, we're already starting to see it. I mean, I, I think okay. there's a, a tremendous amount of um, unbundling activity happening in general around these insurance products. And, um, you know, it's it's probably too early to tell using data, but anecdotally, I would say um, the types of products that have popped up in light of what's happening with COVID and the fact that, you know, lots of people are being left to their own devices, losing, mm -hmm. losing their employer-sponsored, you know, insurance coverage. Um, you know, take the form of these, you know, sort of, you know, whether it's a, like a membership-based model that at the end of the day is, it's a capitated model, um, you know, like what we're talking about with MA, um, you know, combined with something like a catastrophic coverage product that, you know, can cover both, both ends of the stick. Um, you know, one could argue that that actually looks a lot more like real insurance in mm -hmm. some ways, you know, where, where you have, um, it's more of a like a true like coverage product more so than you like know, just a, a provider club. network. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So uh, that's certainly you know what the what I would say the trends indicate is the direction that we're moving in. Yeah, you, I mean, just separate insurance into preventive stuff, predictable stuff, and then unpredictable stuff. Like I don't think this is rocket science. Like <laughs> we we just have have bundled this all into like one pool and it just doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> like the, the the there are procedures where you know exactly what they should cost within like a relatively small bound there are things that you want people to do on a regular basis but you, they in order to do those things they suddenly have to pay into like deductibles and all this cost sharing nonsense and then you have the things that are extremely high variance like inpatient sort of surgeries and all that kind of stuff like those are just I, those should be separate products like it's i don't know it's kind of just wild to me that we just assume that they should all be bundled together. I'll say yeah, that but, like, but don't, don't they bleed yeah. into each other though? Like, you know, if, if, uh, if you're not doing the social determinants, right, you'll get a chronic disease. If you're not handling chronic disease, right, you'll get acute. If you know, acute could become a catastrophic. Don't they yeah. sort of cascade into each other? Totally. But then you should have like, like different 
there should be different pricing mechanisms to represent that, right? Like you, you, you can't have like a cost sharing mechanism that's meant to design people from going to shop around for like the predictable stuff that also then prevents them from doing the preventive stuff. Right. So, so, you know, there has to be, there has to be like a different sort of uh, pricing and incentive structure on a per patient basis. I don't know. I, 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 yeah. I I love the idea. So while we're talking about patients, um, what, what areas do you think patients, um, you know, from their perspective, like where would they never, pay out of pocket like are there are there sort of no-go areas for out-of-pocket patients um or even that like insurance companies should never reimburse for like how do you think about that and that side of the revenue model yeah i mean patients are not going to pay for things like they're not going to know what to pay for things like brain surgery and like random stuff that is catastrophic and they don't expect and all that kind of stuff like i don't know when i'm getting a lobotomy like please don't ask me like what my what my out-of-pocket willingness and that to should be is. a if not when right i mean if there ever was one right <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah i i i, I on the insurance side i mean i think it's kind of, that's kind of an interesting question right like what should insurance pay for or not and it's like you know insurance will always look like the bad guy when they start clamping down on you know uh rationing services that you can and can't use right uh, but the reality is like yeah there's probably a lot of stuff that is that is not you know good at in, in an aggregate spend for the u.s population but it's hard to tell an individual person that it's bad for them right i mean stents are like probably the quintessential example where it's like yeah in an aggregate level like it's probably kind of unnecessary but you tell you know a doctor is telling a patient that they might need a stent that will prevent like a heart attack down the road and like what patient's going to be like oh yeah i love reducing macro healthcare spend please don't give me one right like <laughs> no 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 one is ever going to say that um so i don't know i don't have a great answer for this unfortunately but i think that people underestimate the amount of stuff patients are willing to pay out of pocket for i think this is what companies like hims and um you know a lot of these direct primary care clinics etc have sort of proven is that People are willing to pay for good experiences that they understand, right? Like, I, it, like you know, I am like a one medical user. I love the one medical experience. It's a great, it's a great experience. I'm happy to pay out of pocket for one medical because I enjoy the experience. It's worth it to me. Um, well, you know, and that you yeah. know naturally sort of begs the question that if you look and I actually, uh, Nicole, maybe put on your sort of fortune teller, soothsayer, sort of future predictor hat on. Like if mm. you're going to predict the future, what you were just talking about with like hims and hers and so on is like basically going direct to the consumer with a form yes. of virtual first with, you know, mm-hmm. first wave is is what you're describing, the lifestyle pharmacy and so on. But then, mm-hmm. you know, now there's a second wave, which is primary yeah. care. And it's yes. one medical, but one medical at home or something like that, where you're yes. having a little more into there. Um, how far does this go? And especially, you know, you, if you want to decouple from the old way of doing things, how far can you get into consumer and what does that path look like? Yeah, I mean, I think that like primary care plus specialist is not a very crazy thing to think about, right? Like for a lot of people, their main diagnosis becomes the like thing that governs a lot of their lifestyle generally, right? Like maybe it's one or two diagnoses, right? Um like, for example, you know, I, I like have GERD like that, like annoys the shit out of me. And that's just like my 
everyday thing I got to think about and deal with. Do I need to see like a GI all the time? Like, no, probably not. But would it be nice to have like a GI primary care combo service to, to, to have? Like, yeah, that would be nice. It's like more regular touch points, like small questions I have need to have answered. And then like every so often, I don't know, get a scope done or whatever. Right. Like, I don't see why you can't do that for more specialties where the specialist is the diagnostician and the, um, you know, the person that does like the surgeries or whatever specific kind of procedures to that specialty, um, versus, uh, them needing to do everything from like the workup, the like everyday touch points, all that kind of stuff. Like that can be pushed to other people. Right. And so I think you, you can find virtual specialty teams that have a, that are focused around conditions or focused around specialties or focused or whatever you want to call it. And that becomes your new primary care unit. And they guide you to the in-person care that you need, et cetera. Like, I, I, I think that, I think you'll probably see more of that for people who have like any specific disease that sort of governs their life as a whole. And medications have been the initial like wedge into this, but I can see this easily happening for anything with lifestyle modifications too, right? Like GI is a great example where Mm -hmm. it's largely lifestyle modifications you need to make some, you know, medication switching and all that kind of stuff. And, and not a lot of answers, frankly. Right. Um, so, so those are areas I think you can have a ton of, um, you know, ton of virtual primary care specialty blends, basically. Yeah. Well, speaking of blends, you know, I remember one of your 2021 predictions was that mm. telemedicine companies will start buying physical assets. Mm, yes. And, and, and like, you know, what does that look like? Because now that feels almost like you're going backwards, but I think that speaks to the blend, right? You, because you can, mm-hmm. obviously can't do everything virtual. So how does that blend come about? What do they buy? Yeah. Oh man, I really should have had a real answer for this when I put the prediction. Yeah, you knew out. we were going to call you on this stuff, right? I mean, you know that. <laughs> By the way, BJ also like, outed me that I like forwarded your secret um, predictions that you only gave to people who like signed up for your newsletter. <laughs> so he outed me. Wow, I yeah, it's niche my midst. Uh, <laughs> it's too funny. Um, it's lead yeah, legion for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the the two the two areas I was thinking about when I when I said that are one I think ambulatory surgery centers are kind of an interesting one because if if they're trying if if CMS is like last breath from last year was trying to move more surgeries away from inpatient only to ambulatory generally then I think ambulatory surgery centers can do more stuff. And I think on top of that, you see a lot of these musculoskeletal companies trying to figure out what the like um, ladder of severity that patients dealing with musculoskeletal um, issues need to go through, right? So it's like home therapy. It's, um, you know, maybe they need to like go do physical therapy in person and then maybe they need to go get surgery and you want to sort of send them to like one of your places that's most cost effective or something like that. So I think that that area is kind of interesting for virtual MSK providers to get into more ambulatory surgery center. Again, I'm like sort of shooting from the hip here. So. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense because there's there's a lot you can do at home. And frankly, compliance is one of the biggest issues in healthcare. And so if you can get people mm-hmm. like, like you're talking about MSK, a lot of MSK is physical therapy, PT. Like mm-hmm. PT, mm-hmm. the PT works if people just do it. But like the hardest thing yep. is like just getting people to do it and the compliance is so hard in so many different areas. I think if virtual could just help with compliance, like just get the mm-hmm. basics, not do like this super amazing cure to cancer from like, uh, which, you know, which is like super high tech, but just the basics that actually could be really yeah. interesting. And it's kind of the boring thing, yeah. but the boring things done right. 
could save a lot of money and save you from doing that surgery or save you from having to get that drug. Um, yeah. I don't know. Or triage uh, people totally. and figure out who needs in-person PT versus who can probably get by, you know, doing laps around, around their neighborhood and, yeah. you know, figure out w- which is which. Risk stratification is another yeah. is another big use case. For and, the and to virtual. Vanita's point, you could have in-person PT or virtual PT. And there's sometimes maybe you have to transition, but you try virtual first and get the compliance and then escalate as necessary. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, I think one version of this was risk triaging. I think there's a second version, which is what are like underutilized pers- uh, personnel in healthcare and like, how do you better deploy them? And so pharmacists is another area that I think is really interesting, where it's like, if you're a virtual primary care provider in some capacity, do you use pharmacies or buy pharmacies in areas of high density where you have a lot of patients to basically like route them there to do any sort of like hands on the body work, I'll call it. Um, Yeah, that's interesting because like when I look at a lot of pharmacies, it feels like they're in the back corner and I've got to do the gauntlet to get through the the Cheetos and the the cookies and all the stuff they want me to buy before I get Uh there. If a lot more of the shelf space was almost primary care, I mean, that stuff is everywhere. Um, well, but, you know, oh, don't take, don't take these cookies from me. This is like my, this is my one, <laughs> this is my one, my one saving grace, please. Well, but like to that end, then like, <laughs> you know, we're talking about primary care. I mean, this is starting to become, you know, uh, closer, almost like a baby version of a hospital. I mean, what do you think will happen to hospitals in five years, uh, given the current pro- uh, proliferation of virtual services? Yeah. They'll, they'll lobby their way into existence. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I've been thinking about this. I'm like, well, uh, you know, what what is like the core purpose of a hospital? Um, and, and does it solve that core purpose today? And it's kind of hard to actually tease apart like what we actually like really, really need hospitals for, right? There are some parts where it's like, what are things that require like actual massive facilities or like a lot of CapEx just generally? And it's like, maybe that's having, you know, ORs, emergency rooms and stuff like that. But I mean, you can have freestanding versions of all these. I think five years is like a short, too short of a time frame. But it's like in a long run, I think that if you can basically have the coordination layer be more virtual, like there's no reason why you can't point people to freestanding versions of what most of hospitals do. And so I think well, hospitals you- have to yeah, what do you think, though? I mean, the writing on the wall looks pretty scary for hospitals if you're running a hospital right now, just even just as a business. I mean, what yeah. do you think Do you, What do you think they're going to do? You talked about lobby themselves. Uh, that may be part of it. Um, are there, what does that future look like? I think a lot of them will try to become insurance companies, and then a lot of them will fail at trying to do that. That's, that's my, my short-term guess. Uh, my longer-term guess is that they will probably prime partner with companies that have great consumer experiences to handle a lot of the more predictable preventive and sort of like front end stuff. Yeah. And I, you know, I think you're sort of seeing some inklings of that, like hymns uh, and Oshner partnering and all that kind of stuff. Like I think hospitals realize and the pandemic has sort of made it very abundantly clear that like they're terrible at consumer facing anything. I mean, I got like an Instagram ad the other day for Northwell trying to like, <laughs> trying to, like bring, bring really? back to the hospital. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, I'm like, like, like scrolling through looking at like deranged memes and see a Northwell like person sanitizing the, the, the chair. And I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, when Oshner gets into memes, then, you know, then, 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 then that's the moment, right? Exactly. That's how, you know, that's how, you know, I've jumped, they've jumped the boat. 
but yeah, I mean, I think, I think they'll, I think a lot of them will realize that like, yeah, we're terrible at like the front end stuff. Like let's partner with someone who is not like a uh, payer affiliated because I think that's their greatest fear is that mm-hmm. the front door mm-hmm. becomes something that payers control. And instead let's partner with someone who's more, I don't know, cash pay or like let's partner with someone who is independent and like, uh, uh, you know, or virtually independent. Um, and then figure that yeah. out. That's so, a really yeah, interesting I, I picture. Would, uh... Yeah, well, maybe maybe I'll in, insert uh, a little bit of controversy here. So I, I don't know if I agree that hospitals are as um, as at risk for a variety of core services that they currently provide. I think they could take a different form. They could be unbundled, to Julie's point, and some services could be delivered in a in a lower acuity setting. But I'd say over fifty percent of the patients I've ever seen hospitalized, I could not imagine. In a in a particularly lower acuity care setting, right? That's mm-hmm. post-operative patients, patients with extraordinary pain, mm-hmm. patients who have wounds, patients who have acute infections, patients who require mm-hmm. ICU level care. So actually, I actually think a large set of those services are immutable. Like they're here to stay. We can mm-hmm. move, we can shift them around a little bit, and we can certainly build a better wrapper for all the way up to the point that the patient reaches the hospital and every step of the way after they leave the hospital. Mm-hmm. But I'd actually argue that the core set of services that most hospitals provide, a lot of that will stay protected. Um, yep. That doesn't mean it's easy to run a hospital or to operate on margins that thin and so on and so forth. But I, I, just, I, I, just the I, other I, side I, of that, <laughs> that I argument. I that as like unexpected stuff generally as a bucket, right? Um, I mean, most of the things I think you you talked you talked about are things that sort of develop either as complications or unexpected things that happen. And I think that is a great purpose to have hospitals. I just don't know if they need to be like as, uh, how should I say, lavish as they currently are to fulfill that need. But I will say like the other parts of the hospital, which are way harder to replicate are things like, you know, teaching hospitals or research or that kind of stuff, right? Like, you can't really just like unbundle all of those things like, you know, from each other. They serve uh, good purposes. So that's the part I haven't like quite thought through. You know, as much as I think about things, I don't think about everything, unfortunately. <laughs> but you're a think boy. Um, the other thing that, um, the other angle that um, someone mentioned that I think is quite interesting is um, kind of like will hospitals or will ask, so I agree with Benita that like the high-end stuff will always have to have, you know, some kind of tertiary quaternary type setting. Um, but, you know, could you take the rest of the real estate that these guys occupy and essentially do something akin to the dark kitchens where you mm. take advantage of like the logistics and the supply chain and like the GPO aspects of what hospitals do? And then also um, recognizing that with the advent of a lot of these home based services, you will need some kind of like hub logistics sort of, you know, component for deploying equipment mm-hmm. and like refurbishing okay. things and, you know, having kind of a local presence to um, kind of serve as mission control. So yeah, that's yeah. another aspect of like leveraging what, you know, a, a part of the core competency of these hospitals that isn't consumer facing, but is probably still going to be a critical element of how we deliver distributed care. Yeah, that's a great idea. Cloud kitchens, but for hospitals. Um, mm-hmm. Is that your next you blog know. post? No, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> we just need I was going to ask mis- for royalties, but um, I guess we need to get Mr. Beast into healthcare. That's the, that'll be the <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. Um, one other question to kill on this on this topic. Um, mm-hmm. wh- what's your take on hardware innovation? You know, because hardware has always been sort of the death knell, you know, for yeah. VC and, and and kind of you know early stage innovation. But clearly, to make some of these models more cost effective, we'll need to figure out how to 
bring yeah. down the cost of you know doing certain you know collections and, yeah. and things like that in the home like what's what's your what's your take uh, in terms of where I, we are today and where things will head i gotta be totally honest with you hardware is like so above my pay grade like people pitching me prototypes of stuff and i'm like i i don't even know like i've never even used a hammer before like i don't know what to do with this <laughs> um more i think the more more somewhat more serious answer to this is like i think broadly there is First of all, I think companies like Levels and stuff, and I'm really not trying to like pimp your portfolio companies out, I swear, but companies like Level and, and stuff, I think are proving that there is a demand, a consumer willingness to pay for hardware, uh, medical grade hardware kind of out of the box. And I actually think Apple has sort of proven this in a, small, in, in a different scale. Um, so, so one is I think there's like, there is a willingness to pay uh, for that. I think the second is, there are probably going to be, if you believe that remote patient monitoring becomes more widespread and home-based models for different diseases become more widespread, like it's 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 not unreasonable to think that an extension of that is more disease-specific hardware that monitors different biomarkers at home. Um, just general sort of shrinking of the things that you would have in the hospital and just put it in a home setting. Um, my, I mean, my favorite version of this is definitely Butterfly, where it's like, cool, you can now bring ultrasounds mm -hmm. to... Um, the, and to a portable sort of uh, bedside setting. Um, so, you know, I think, I just think like, look at, just like look at the stuff in a hospital and be like, what is eventually going to be miniaturized? And, you know, eventually a lot of those will happen for for home care settings and, and very specific disease states. Um, but, you know, I, it's not like, I have no opinions or things. I'm like, oh man, semiconductor is really unlocking some, you know, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> Nikhil, I want to, so we've sort of talked about the payer evolving and thinking through mm -hmm. new payment models and revenue models. We've talked about the provider and mm -hmm. your thoughts about how, you know, care is likely to shift at least partially, I'd say, out of the hospital towards the home with virtual, you know, care delivery. Let's mm -hmm. think about that interface. And I wanted to start with the question you mentioned, Kaiser has unique workflows, for example, as a sort of combined mm -hmm. payvider, so to speak. C can we double click mm -hmm. on this? Why, why do you think more such systems don't exist? And can you talk us through what some of those workflow habits are that, that you think are particularly unique to the payvider? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd probably defer to you guys on the what Kaiser's workflow looks like that's a different side, because as a as West Coast people, I'm sure you have way more intimate knowledge of this. Um, I, I think Kaiser is just like a really interesting model, right? People have tried been trying to replicate this for so many years, and it's just really difficult, if not impossible, right? Um, part of it is because Kaiser sort of you know, it started in World War II as like a health plan for like ship workers or some shit. I don't even remember. But it's like they had they started out with it's like 70 percent or something of the total market. Right. Like it, it, it would be it's unless you like acquire your way into 70 percent of the market um, from the get go and build a payer provider from the ground up. Like I think it would be so hard to try and replicate that today. And I also think it's why company, you know, companies like Kaiser have not done super well outside of California either, because they, they haven't been able to like replicate the same dynamics. Um, my understanding of Kaiser's care broadly is that it is way more like protocolized and standardized versus, you know, in other hospitals where you have to think about like, what is the insurance situation of the patient, like wait for prior auths and like all this other stuff. You had to build like essentially like custom workflows just to figure out what the patient's, you know, 
uh, uh, payer situation is before you can do anything. Um, so, I mean, that's my general, that's my like general thought is, is we, I, I'm in the camp that like, we need to standardize more care and that's the way you can scale care is by making, making it more standardized. And, um, I just haven't seen anyone else do it quite, maybe like Geisinger or another one of these like, um, integrated mm-hmm. delivery network types. But, and then that highlights but, sort yeah, of the I mean, downfall I, of, of the approach as well, right? Kaiser, notoriously, where they fall short is is sometimes on extraordinarily specialized care or when their patients right. need care outside of the Kaiser network, it actually becomes mm-hmm. a roadblock for exactly the reason you mentioned. Right. Um, they won't, it's hard. But to I wonder if that's okay, right? Like, outside. is it okay to send those complex care mm-hmm. patients to like a different facility that specializes in that? Maybe it's not even within the state, right? I mean, it obviously mm-hmm. depends on the situation, but like, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. I think the part of the workflow that I find particularly compelling is just the shared accountability across primary care and specialty care because that same entity is also bearing the cost. Like I'll give everybody a a real world example that will seem striking, but I've been part of what's, you know, an academic oncology practice, for example, Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. um, that decided it was not within their purview to administer flu vaccines. And Mm -hmm. so cancer patients who really, for the most part, ought to be getting flu vaccines uh, religiously, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, would show up and say, oh, I haven't had my flu vaccine this year. But that specialty clinic would say, that's not that's not our job. Like, we can't sorry, we can't do that. Please go to your primary care. And I'd wager more than half of those patients, even if they were willing to get the vaccine, ever got it. Right. And I think that's an example of of a simple workflow that I think some of the integrated systems that are bearing total cost of care recognize they should have available like at every doorstep <laughs> like no matter where you go if you want a flu vaccine you'll get one right um yeah but it's interesting to think about why that hasn't proliferated more yeah i, I this is sort of going back a little bit to the virtual specialty primary care thing i was talking about before it's like this is why i think it would make sense for the for these to be on the same team and 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 you buy basically into the team um, because they can work way more closely together. Um, mm-hmm. So flows out of that, but yeah. So then in the rest of the, of the universe, where there is a very complex payer-provider administrative interface, um, where mm-hmm. we often hear about technology that might enable revenue cycle management, you know, the numbers are pretty striking here. Like 15 to 30% of our overall healthcare spend mm-hmm. goes into this, interface between mm-hmm. payer and provider to coordinate um, mm-hmm. payment for care. And it's like one of the most primary sources of, of crazy user experiences for patients and providers, both, um, and payers. Tell us like your most mind-blowing, you know, head, you know, clutch your head in pain stories of healthcare admin care or <laughs> rev cycle oh, management. God sort of total cluster stories that you've ever heard. Oh man. I mean, I was just reading one today that just like, it always makes me so annoyed. This is like maybe known to people in healthcare, but maybe not to other people that are not. Um, the birthday rule, I think is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. So for people that don't understand this, basically what it is, is if you are, let's say it's two parents and they both get um, employer sponsored coverage for their families and they have a kid. Now, the kid would technically fall under both parents' insurance. So the question is, like, whose insurance do you use when you go to the doctor? 
Now, a logical person would be like, okay, you pick the insurance that makes the most sense for that situation. But instead, they come up with this absolutely like batshit system where it's the pe- it's the it's the parent whose birthday came first in the year counts as the primary coverage, and you have to use that. And so I'm like, I like read the story about this poor couple that um, you know gave birth in a hospital. The kid had to end up going to the NICU, and so it ended up being an extended stay. And the NICU, and because the NICU was in a different hospital, um, they you know they put the insurance coverage of the mom for both hospitals. And then they were like, and then the, the insurance plan sent an investigator to find out if it was actually their bill. And it was like, Oh, actually, according to the birthday rule, your husband was born before you. And so <laughs> it's his insurance. And they like, were hit with like a, you know, totally out of network, insane bill. And I'm like, what, I'm like, what is this? <laughs> right? Like, it's like, it's like someone, it's like someone is just winging rules out there. And this is like, not a, this is not an uncommon thing, right? Like, Two parents mm-hmm. with employer-sponsored coverage, like that's very common. So it's like, it's like, why? Like, what do we do? Like, what are we really doing? This is the kind of stuff that makes people make fun of the U.S. healthcare system, and I totally get it. Like, and which side? Which like, side we, is more desperate for technology? Is it the payer who's creating, you know, some of the rules? Is it the provider who needs to participate in those systems? Like, on on which side do you think the primary? It's me. Of, of I want to participate in the system be. and just <laughs> fix this whole thing. I would like that tech. It's like half a joke, but half like just put me in a Slack channel with two people on either end of this, and we'll we'll solve this in like thirty seconds, right? The problem is like the delay and how long the bill takes to actually come, and then you call one representative and they have no idea what you're talking about, and then you switch to the other. And I'm like, I, I think healthcare is probably the like number one, uh, you know, uh, supporter of three-way phone calls in the entire world. Like, I'm, I'm sure of this. Um, so, I mean, the, the real answer is it's probably payers. They have more at stake here um, financially to, to, to sort of do it. Um, and, and I don't know, I think hospitals end up outsourcing this for a lot of third parties anyway. Um, but it's like, a, it's like a Red Queen's race, right? It's like both, both teams are hiring more and more people to like make sure the other one doesn't get much money. And then like, that's how you get admin costs of like 15, 30% trying to deal with bills, right? Like, it's like, that's so that's so nuts to me. Like that is not where we should be spending any of our time and money. Hey, do yeah, you know what gave birth initially to the birthday rule, or has that just been lost to time? Like, where does that even come oh, from? It's insane. I don't even know. I, I think they were trying to like come up with the most random way to do it or something, <laughs> and, and this is what they came up with. But I really actually have no idea. But all I know is that my kid is getting born on January 1st, and he's, he's going to be the primary <laughs> insurance. <laughs> Good luck yeah. with that. Um, it's absolute chaos. <laughs> yeah. No, but the, sad, the, the, the last like, sad thing on this topic is when you talk to now people on the, on the provider side and people on the payer side, like both sides are throwing their hands up saying, like, you know, how do we get into this mess with regards to the amount of spend and the number of bodies they have to throw at these problems? So. You know, I'm optimistic that we're at a tipping point where a lot of this is being rethought and whether it's, you know, those individual sides of the equation themselves adopting technology to make this more efficient or just, you know, blowing up the payment model entirely and saying, Mm -hmm. like, screw the claim and, you know, let's just direct contract. Let's not micromanage each other anymore. I mean, namely the payers, you know, micromanaging the providers with things like prior auth and UM and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, just like have just a more direct line to get rid of all that, uh, all that fluff. 
Uh, yeah, let me you know, let me toss a soft grenade into the room that I would be curious to get your thoughts on. I there's all this hype and sort of um, investment in robotic process automation right now to do a <laughs> lot of this stuff. I just don't get it. Like I I'm just like what like why are we making this process faster when the process sucks? Right? Like you were talking yeah. about either making it simpler or finding new payment models. Right? Like if the payment models are bad or like we're doing things to make it easier to get paid for hospitals that involve like 50 clicks to bother and insure. Like maybe the problem is actually that we just need to blow up the payment model and how that works in the first place. Like what I'm curious from, from your guys' perspective, like is, is, is robotic process automation like a wedge to something else? Or it's just like, we're going to be in here for like 10 years and that's just what it is. Like we're yeah. going to invest. <laughs> I'm with you on this one to kill, but I have, okay. So, so like the, the take on RPA for let's let's call it like provider facing just um, to to scope it and be specific. So I would say mm-hmm. like as someone who spent ten years of my life integrating with EHRs, it is just a better way. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, there just aren't APIs for so even the like so not all EHRs have APIs like modern you know kind of web services APIs or Fire APIs. Even if they do, mm-hmm. they are highly constrained with regards to like the endpoints that are exposed to like, you know, mm-hmm. just do basic functions. Like this is, you know, your your newsletter that you put out um, where I mentioned the whole like scheduling API thing. If people mm-hmm. people assume that like scheduling part of the EHR is actually where there's potentially more ability to like automate and integrate. Like that's absolutely not the case. Like all of the efforts have been around, you know, patient data really and um, mm-hmm. everything else sort of falls to the wayside. So there's like a legitimate like, time to market acceleration need for things like RPA to just like cut past all of that and say like, we just need to like interface with the EHR in whatever most efficient way we can. And, and that's, and that's what allows us to like focus on the higher order things. So I think there's actually like a very legitimate reason why a lot of these companies are using that. Um, That Mm -hmm. said, I also like very much agree with your statement that like, it can't just be a blunt instrument to like replicate the shitty processes of the humans that are, you know, Mm -hmm. doing the manual things. So, you know, there are companies and, you know, uh, like Alpha in our portfolio and um, and others that are taking, you know, kind of a differentiated approach to using RPA in such a way that's actually intelligent, that like takes the things that humans are doing and then, you know, kind of abstracts out of that the best way to do it versus just replicating brute force any one thing that you know, a human is doing. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't think even call ha- that RPA even. I mean, that's yeah. Like, uh, yeah. It's, it's like AI. I mean, that's that's like legit AI. Um, AI. But so I think it has to be a combination of both where like, I think there's I, I, like the way that like founders are thinking about how do I just get into the workflow uh, and not have to require humans to do things. Like I think the use of RPA is legitimate for that reason, because, you know, the the infrastructure and API availability in core EHR is just not there. But um, I think, you know, from, from a what we would hope those those innovators are, are then doing with that capability, you know, it's very much about um, make sure that it is an intelligent use of that capability versus just a brute force replication of shitty process. Yeah, that makes sense. Someone can RPA my my computer processes and just press tweet 50 times in a row. And, <laughs> you know, that'll be useful. But the memes, the memes are all bespoke. That's true. Yeah, that's true. You well, can well all- that's where AI comes in. It's not about <laughs> exactly. macros, right? It, it, it's about, like, Nikhil as a service. Exactly. It's GPT-7. <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish. That would make my life much easier, trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. All right. No, I think that makes sense. That's, like, a... I think I, I, I'd be curious to see what, how many of the RPA companies, like I'd love to know like how they sort of expand into new areas past just the human clicking. Um, so I'm excited to watch.
yeah, no, I agree. I think it's the first layer of many mm -hmm. things to come. Cool. All right. Um, let's bring it home on the questions. And then I do want to make sure we pipe in some of the audience uh, uh, suggestions here. Um, so last question for you, Nikhil, is what is next for the out-of-pocket franchise? Oh, man. And you know, specifically, I'm keen to know when you are going to start your own healthcare conference and what it will be called yeah. and whether it's going to have any vowels in the name. Yeah, JP Morgan two two JP two Morgan. That's the name. <laughs> that's the name of the conference. Uh, or or it'll be some other dumb healthcare meme like uh, like the donut hole or some some really really specific <laughs> really specific term. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm I, I'm excited. I mean, this year I'm kind of um, basically trying to do some uh, playbooks, so how to sell the hospitals and all that kind of jazz um, that I'm putting together with a few people. Uh, I have a card game coming out, which I'm not going to reveal too many details on, but that is my... Yeah, no, my no, 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 no. You can't just say this. <laughs> it's like saying, you know, I've got this cruise ship line coming out, but I can't yeah. give too many details. <laughs> no, but that's half the fun, isn't it? Just to be like, what, like when did this happen? Uh, you'll see it. I'll, I'll announce it in a couple of weeks. Don't worry. Um, but it's, it'll, it'll, it's my next... Uh, it's Cards Against me. Healthcare Humanity. No, that would be so boring. It's all already, That'd be already kind of obvious. Done. Yeah, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. No, I got a, I got a more fun one. Don't worry. Um, for so what it's worth, I had. <laughs> for what it's worth, I had Nikhil uh, card game on my 2021 predictions. Ah, my secret 2021 I didn't, predictions. That, I didn't even have that on my predictions, so that's pretty impressive. It's very impressive. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, a, I'm acquiring an in-person asset of a card manufacturing company. Um, no, but that's uh, those are the those are some of the things I'm I'm doing this year. Uh, events, we'll see. I'd always thought there's like a room for an event that was uh, only VPs and below, invite only, off the record, where people say actually interesting things on the panel. Or on the flip side, you do like Sun Valley for healthcare, where it's like mm. you know everyone just rolling up to some dinner off like a helicopter, wearing the same vest and sunglass combo. So one or the other. Isn't Sun Valley the Sun Valley for healthcare? I'm not invited to it if it is. So I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I think that's just called collusion in healthcare, but, uh, you know, softer. <laughs> but yeah. Very cool. Well, we're excited to see the card game come out and for all that is yet to come. Um, mm -hmm. under your umbrella of out of pocket. So um, so thank you, Nikhil, for all those comments. Let's let's go to a couple questions here while we have a few minutes left. Um, we had uh, Devesh um, sent in a question, which he was responding to our talk about hospitals. Um, hospitals are medical complexes where you can find care for almost everything. It's actually convenient for people that need a lot of care. Why are we so hung up on unbundling it rather than fixing what's broken about it? So first and foremost, I would like to know what hospital device you go to that you have such a wonderful experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Nikhil, why don't you uh, chime in and, and I'll uh, I'll say some some things as well. This is this is sort of what we were talking about before, right? Where it depends on like what kind of patient you are. Um, for the patients that have really complex care and they have to have really long inpatient stays, stuff like that, like, yeah, that stuff is really beneficial and useful, right? Um, but for the average person, that's not the experience they want when it costs, like, their entire, like, year or, like, three months of salary, right? Like, that's brutal. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I think it works for some people and it doesn't work for most people. And right now, we actually just don't have a lot of optionality in choosing between those and we need more. Like that's sort of what it is. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that I always um, kind of index on is the fact that hospitals inherently by virtue of like the way that they are physically manifested requires patients to like sort of operate on the hospital's terms. And it's always like you you have to you have to like commit to the doctor's schedule. You have to drive there. You have to like everything sort of orbits around that central node. And so there's just like very little flexibility. So, you know, there certainly probably is a portion of the population for which it is ideal uh, and Mm -hmm. kind of the one-stop shop thing. But I mean, even the one-stop shop thing, you know, this is, um, there's always the argument of like, you know, kind of volume breeds quality and like, you know, can hospitals really do everything very well? And, you know, especially on the lower end of the, of the acuity spectrum. Um, like if I remember like, you know, having lived in Boston and, you know, certain hospital systems were getting like very heavily into primary care and you just have to wonder like, okay, if you're the world's expert on these super complex, you know, cardiac surgeries, like how can you at the same time be the world's expert on primary care and urgent care? Um, and I think that's where, um, you know, the specialization concept that we were talking about earlier, uh, really matters. And, um, and, and, and again, like network partnerships, this is why like interoperability is so important is that. You don't necessarily have to own it all if the cost of doing business with a network partner is 10x lower than it is today. And, you know, that's, I think, a, a big part of the reason why you see such consolidation is that there, there, there have been historically been ways to, like, conduct commerce with other partners um, in a low-cost fashion, which, again, I think is, is changing with, with the, uh, the advent of interoperability and just other means of doing these kind of direct contracting motions. I will say, Devesh, I empathize with your... Um with your comment about a one-stop hospital shop being really important for a lot of patients. I think anybody who's ever been to a VA hospital will have experienced this, but vets show up to VA hospitals all the time because they just don't know where to go or what to do uh, about a health problem. And they know that everything is under one roof. They'll be able to find primary care there. They'll be able to find behavioral health there. There's an emergency room there. There's an ICU there. Um, and there is, I don't think we've, most hospitals have actually replicated parts of that experience for a variety of the reasons that we, that we discussed in the past hour, but done right and with the right incentives, um, aligned towards kind of holistic patient care without some of the interoperability concerns that lots of other health systems have, you know, there can be a really important component of in-person one-stop shopping, um, that I think we're going to have to figure out ways of reproducing in mm-hmm. in other ecosystems. For sure. Awesome. Um, all right, we probably have time for one more question here. Um, I'll pick one from uh, Ross over at Unify, who's building some cool stuff there. His question is, do you think we would have companies like Livongo, Omada, Hinge, Maven, et cetera, were it not for employer-based and purchased healthcare? Put another way, do you think we'd have the universe of digital first healthcare delivery companies were it not for employer-based um, and purchased healthcare, which is nearly universally how all these companies got off the ground and scaled? That's a great question. Um, I, I So it's hard to say. I mean, there's like some bizarro universe in which the U.S. has no employers purchasing the stuff, and I have no idea how that goes. Um, but I, I think, I think realistically what what you really need is just sort of uh people who are um financially incentivized to try out new things just broadly right like one of the things about the employer channel that i think is you know good and bad it depends how you want to look at it is that the burden of proof i think is lower than compared to 
hospitals and 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 large insurers. Um, and and because of that, they're more willing, I think, to experiment with new um, new new sort of uh, new benefits, new services, etc. And I really think what that comes down to, and like my belief is just we need more small, medium-sized businesses and healthcare kind of across the board, because I think that will make them more willing to sort of try out and experiment new solutions. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, like in, in the employer side, like most employers are really large, but there are a lot of them. So you can pitch to a lot of different ones. So yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard to say if it would exist without uh, employers as a purchasing channel. Um, I think if they didn't, hopefully there would have been some void in which, uh, more small businesses, uh, I'm sorry, more like small, medium-sized providers or health insurance plans, et cetera, tested out some of these things, but it's hard to say, honestly, I don't have a great, I don't have a great answer for that. Yeah. I think I agree with, uh, with that. Um, you know, and I, I, I do think like had, had that not been a viable channel, um, like the pressure would have come from somewhere. And I think, you know, the cynical view on on what's happening there, as you've already articulated, is kind of, you know, the areas where people feel that their carriers are failing them are is, is kind of where they've innovated. And so, you know, would it have been the carriers themselves who would have filled that gap? Would it have been upstart carriers, um, you know, who are who are providing those services? Would it have been something more like a captive model, you know, that was aggregating demand across employers? Uh, doing it in kind of more of a derivative fashion or or just direct to consumer? Would that have taken off sooner? Than it did, you know, had that void been there. So who knows? Ross, I would love to hear your answer offline. <laughs> yeah, you probably have a better answer after teeing up that question. So you have to tell me what the answer is. <laughs> awesome. Well, it looks like we're right on time. So um, thank you again, Nikhil. Always uh, amazingly um, entertaining and, and insightful hearing uh, your point of view on the space. Um, and for folks who don't already follow him or subscribe to his newsletter, please do so. It will be one of the best things you read every week. Thank yeah, you. Come, come through. It's fun. Thanks for having me. This was fun.